Thank you, members of the choir. That was wonderful. Some scholars have maintained that the book entitled Acts of the Apostles would be better named if we consider that the fifth gospel. If in addition to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we had the gospel according to the Holy Spirit. For more than any other book in the Bible, the Acts of the Apostles is the book that exalts and glorifies the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, of course, did not come into existence on Pentecost Day. The Holy Spirit has always been the third person in the Trinity, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God moved across chaos and brought the world into being. The Holy Spirit moved in various and sundry times throughout the Old Testament, and Jesus himself breathed on his disciples before his death and resurrection and said, Receive ye the Holy Spirit. But after the death and resurrection of Jesus, we see the Holy Spirit now uniquely the agent to present Jesus, crucified, risen from the dead. Now we see the Holy Spirit with the church of Jesus Christ, the Lord himself as its head, the church as his agent. So Pentecost has rightly been called the birthday of the Christian church. Pentecost is a Greek word, literally means 50 days. The feast celebrated by that word Pentecost was originally an agricultural harvest, mandated in the law that all adult Jews living within 20 miles of Jerusalem should be in attendance for that feast to celebrate the harvest, the wheat harvest, and its completion. Later, it became a celebration of the giving of the law. Certainly by the time uh, Luke's gospel was written in Acts, it was celebrated as a commemoration of the giving of the law. But this, this feast, which came some 50 days after Passover Sunday, in other words, a week of weeks, seven to seven plus one, 50 days after Passover this feast became the most popular of all because the travel conditions were so ideal. Consequently, you had Jews from every nation there, and Jerusalem, if it's possible, was even more crowded during Pentecost than it was during Passover week. It was during that week on Pentecost day that the Holy Spirit was given. The disciples were all together in an upper room, more than likely, in a house. may not have been a big room. We don't know whether it was just the twelve or the hundred and twenty. But we think it couldn't have been a very large crowd. They were all together in one place. They were worshiping, they were praying, and then suddenly a sound like a mighty wind filled the house where they were meeting. The word for wind in Greek, of course, is the same word as spirit. A mighty wind, a mighty spirit filled the place where they were. And there descended and sat on them tongues as of fire on every one of them. And they began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. 
And with that acquisition of the miracle of languages, there came a new boldness that enabled them to leave the room where they had uh, withdrawn from the world, and now they went into the streets sharing with all persons in their native language the mighty works of God. And of all the miracles recorded on that Pentecost day, the most significant, of course, was the line, the verse which reads, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit brings with him the gifts required to build up the community of faith, to build up the body. Whether the need is for language, for strength, for power, Whatever the need is, it's given in the hour of need by the Holy Spirit for the building up of the community of faith. Now, in all candor, we ought to acknowledge right early that this was a very unsettling experience. No matter how many people were present in a city of the size of Jerusalem, we're talking hundreds of thousands, maybe millions. Even in a city of that size, we're we're seeing a very unsettling thing. These were common people. All the disciples were common people except for the Apostle Paul and possibly Peter. But they were very ordinary folk uh, who had never been uh, trained, uh, who who didn't know uh, the ways of the world. They were Galileans, and the Galileans uh, were considered a backward people. Certainly they didn't have the boldness to go out and confront well-traveled persons, and nevertheless they confronted them with the good news of what God had done in Christ so strongly that they captured their attention altogether. And Peter, taking advantage of the, of the opportunity, uh, preached his sermon, and 3,000 people were converted on a single day. Now that'll turn a city on its ear. It doesn't matter what size city it is. This was a very unsettling thing. Those disciples discovered who they were. They were called to be witnesses for God. And they discovered what they were to be about. Somebody has said, the tragedy deepens when we realize we don't know who we are and what we want. It is a tragedy when people like Blake's little man cry out, I want, I want, and we never really probe the depths of our being to determine what it is we want. The real tragedy, I suppose, comes when we decide to settle for a perpetual state of want, when we do nothing about that deep, disturbing vacuum in our soul. When we become like Willie Lohman's epitaph, you remember from Death of a Salesman, about whom that epitaph read, he dreamed the wrong dreams and never really discovered who he was. Oh, that's a tragedy of the first order. When we settle for less than we can become, when we never realize our potential and somehow determine that this gnawing emptiness is a normal circumstance in a person's life. That's a tragedy. Bishop Olivet said it so very well last week in his column. This 
yes, this past week, when he wrote about the essence of sin. And he quoted Paul saying, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And he said that word and there is not a conjunction saying we've sinned and we have also fallen short of the glory of God. He was saying that to sin is to fall short of the glory of God. It is missing the mark. It is settling for mediocrity rather than insisting on excellence. It is deciding it's all right to be empty. It's all right to be half fulfilled. It's all right to be incomplete. It's all right that we don't know what is that gnawing need inside our souls. It was a very unsettling experience in Pentecost. And people began to ask themselves, who am I and and, and why am I here and what am I for? The disciples discovered that they were called to be witnesses in the very place where they were. In yesterday's paper, I was interested to read about our sisters and brothers in the Roman Catholic Church and their emphasis on evangelism. I read with some interest, as you did, I'm sure, the poll that, that determined that, that 2% of the Roman Catholics are, are comfortable talking to people about Jesus Christ. And I thought as I read that only 2% are comfortable uh, talking to someone about Jesus Christ, I felt no sense of smugness. I, I doubt it would be any higher at all if a poll were taken of United Methodists. I believe that is the plight of all Christians, that we have this temerity, this timidity about talking to anyone about Jesus Christ, about being a witness. You know, to be a witness, according to the New Testament, is to be a martyr. To be a witness is to be willing to lay down your life for the cause of the gospel. And, and here were some people who had, who had been deserters, who had run away from Jesus when, it, when their lives were threatened. And all of a sudden, they, they burst out of their upper room and they confront absolute strangers and say, let me tell you about Jesus Christ and what God is doing through him. You know, you and I grew up on such a narrow meaning of repentance. Many of us did. We think about repentance and we think about a courtroom where someone has been found guilty and, and we're guilty of doing something and, and then we're declared innocent by God's grace. But repentance can also be from timidity. Repentance can also be from that weak resignation. Repentance can also be from an unwillingness to be a complete person, from an unwillingness to, to discover that boldness to be God's person. It's not just for the guilty, you know. It's also for the empty. For those who've copped out like Simon Peter and went fishing. For those who've despaired out like Judas and hanged himself. And for the rest of them who just eased back into obscurity. And said, if you don't mind, I'll just withdraw and get over here on the side and let the world go by. Pentecost was very unsettling. It still is when the Spirit comes. Pentecost is also that time when we're equipped and made uh, adequate to do the work of God. I 
think about a friend of mine. I haven't known him very long, but I met him in another state the other day. Has a lovely church and a growing community. I began to talk with this man about evangelism in his church and some of the opportunities for ministry to to help the people of that community. And he began to tell me of his despair, finally concluding that it is inevitable that the church is is going down. He gave me all the statistics that says all of us together, all denominations are still barely keeping pace with the population growth in America. We aren't gaining anything, he said. It's inevitable that as our community becomes more secular and people have more things to do, they aren't going to come to church. The church doesn't stand a chance. And as I listened to that man sing his song of woe, I thought the only hopeful sign about him was he's going to retire in two years. Only thing positive I could find in that community, he's going to move on off into some condominium or some apartment somewhere and get out of the pulpit. No, we don't have the power within ourselves to bring revival. And no, we can't turn a secular society around. But God can through us if we'll let him. I believe our plight is is like that of the Christians in Ephesus. You remember when Paul went there? They had uh, been baptized. They had been converted. But it had all been under the, the ministry or the preaching, rather, of the disciples of John the Baptist. They didn't know anything about the uh, Holy Spirit. Paul asked them, said, Have you received the Holy Spirit since you first believed? And they said, We didn't even know there was any such thing as a Holy Spirit. And Paul was perplexed and amazed. And he said, we have to do something about this. We can't have people who who know when to feel guilty. We can't have people just having an idea of of the fact that they ought to live a better life and, and they ought to be faithful and they ought to be obedient and they ought to do all of these things but who don't have any sense of peace in their souls, who don't have any sense of power, who have never experienced the presence of the risen Christ in their hearts. His concern was that they know the Holy Spirit who gives us a completed Christian experience. When He comes into our lives, then we're like that strong man who is delighted to run a race, who runs his race with joy. Why? Because he knows he is gloriously adequate. Not in his own strength, but in the strength of his God. St. Paul said, without a trace of arrogance in his voice, in Christ, in Christ, he said, I am able for anything. A couple of years ago, Gene and I had an opportunity to take one of those unique sled rides across uh, some mountains in Colorado. In the heart of the winter, we went and they wrapped us up in these wonderful furs and blankets and then they started to hitch up the dog sled team. We were going to have uh, 12 dogs and then the lead dog. 
And, and I remember the biggest problem they had with those dogs. It wasn't pulling that uh, pretty heavy sled all the way over those mountains for miles and then turning around and bringing us back again. That wasn't the problem. The problem they had with them was uh, making them lie down so they could harness them properly and keep them from getting all tangled up in the harness. Those dogs were so eager to plunge into the work, into the challenge of those mountains and of pulling that load that they absolutely had to force them to lie down to wait until the others were in harness. They were always jumping up and wanting to get started. And I thought then, and I believe now, it reminds me of a Christian who's been filled with the Holy Spirit. Instead of, uh, of trying to activate them to get them off dead center, the problem is uh, getting them organized and and in the right direction and pulling together in the same harness. You don't have to worry about motivation when the Spirit comes. You don't have to worry about people volunteering for service. You don't have to worry about any of those things. And most of all, you don't have to worry about them playing out because you don't run out of motivation with the Holy Spirit. Now, if it's self-sufficiency, you run out. But if it's God's sufficiency, it's always there. The other day I read why John Madden retired uh, so early from coaching. You know John Madden, he's that great big old guy always breaking through walls and advertising beer. Looks to me like he's had a little too much of the stuff. But, uh, you know, he's always uh, breaking through the walls and... And he's an, he's an announcer. He only coached 10 years and was highly successful. And someone said, well, why did you just coach at such a short time? Uh, you could have coached for many years. He said, oh, no, I couldn't. He said this in Time magazine. He, he said, no one has more than about 10 years of, of physical and emotional shocks in his locker. Uh, no one has but about 10 years. And when I read that, I thought about my old bishop, my mentor, my hero, Bishop Arthur Moore. I was with him on the day he had his final stroke, up in his 80s, with an old palsied hand that wouldn't be still for him. When he got up to preach, he had put it in his pocket so it wouldn't detract from his sermon. And one of us who loved him and, and who saw ourselves as his disciples would get close to him, so when it was time for him to preach, we'd pull him up and stand a chair around so he could take that one good hand and hold himself steady while he preached the gospel. He lamented the fact that he wanted to say it, that the fire burned more than it had ever burned, but his old body was wearing out, still giving himself. I thought, he didn't run out. He didn't have 10 years in his locker. He had a lifetime. He had more than a lifetime. In fact, you don't run out with God. You wear out. But you never run out. The Holy Spirit completes us. We aren't complete Christians until we've yielded that further yielding Wesley talked about and received the assurance of the risen Christ in our lives.
You see, they were not in that upper room by accident. They were waiting for the promise. Jesus had promised, saying, you tarry here until the Spirit comes. You, you wait until you receive the gift of the Spirit. You've been with me three years. You've seen my crucifixion. You've seen my resurrection. But you still aren't ready until you receive that which was prophesied by the prophet Joel. Until I pour out my Spirit and men and women shall prophesy. Until you see the fulfillment of that which the prophet declared, you aren't ready for my ministry. Here was some completion. Here was an enthusiasm and a fervor that was not of this earth, so that they said they got to be drunk. I've never seen such boldness and fervor in all my life. Now, that was, that was spectacular service, and many times... People erroneously think about the Holy Spirit equipping people for spectacular service. They think about people with their name in prominent places. But the Spirit comes to equip us for daily life, for daily living, for holy living, love, joy, peace, gentleness, self-control. The Holy Spirit comes to help us like those nameless Ephesians just live day in and day out. For Christ. I preached a revival not long ago and gave an altar call. We were into the third stanza of the hymn. No one had moved. Only one person came. A woman. I don't even know her name. She must have been in her 30s. She came down a long aisle right by herself, knelt at the altar and motioned to me to come and pray with her. When I knelt beside her, I said, for what should I pray? She said, I'm just not sure about God. He seems so far away. And I thought, she's not asking for an angel visitation, for a rending of the veil of clay. She's not asking for a prophet's ecstasies. She's asking for the dimness of her soul to be taken away. That's what so many people need from the Holy Spirit, just to be sure about God. I walked across a campus the other day. Oh, what a contrast. The president was giving me a tour of my old school. All the while, he was showing me that dormitory name for an old professor. Or that building named for another, it's that time. And I kept looking for a certain woman, I don't know her name. I finally described her, he said, oh, she's long since been retired and gone. Why do you ask about her? She didn't teach. I said, no, she was the one who sat at the end of the table and agreed to let me enroll in school on a credit. I'll never forget her. And I won't forget the experience I had before I found the courage to ask for credit. The experience I had in a little car on the way to school. When I asked God to, to give me some assurance to come more completely into my life. And He filled me with His presence to the degree that even though I couldn't see into the future, I knew it was going to be all right. Even though I didn't know the way, 
I knew it was all right because the way was with me. Isn't that what we need? What's the clue? How do we have that assurance? One clue is they were all together in an upper room. They were praying. They were worshiping. They were obeying God. They were in worship like you are. And another clue is they were, they were yielded to the work of His Spirit. I remember the first time I took a group of young people to the mountains of North Carolina. Uh, we showed them sliding rock. I encouraged the young people to go sit down and let themselves be taken down that rock in that rushing water. And they shook their heads and studied it a little more carefully. They had never seen it, those flatlanders, never seen anything like that. And while they stood there shaking their heads, our little four or five-year-old daughter, the oldest one who was never scared of anything, just walked up to the top and sat down and slid down the sliding rock. And after a while, we drove away. We had some warm, uncomfortable, unfulfilled, unhappy people. And then we had one refreshed, exhilarated person who had just yielded herself to it. How about you? Have you yielded yourself? Are you ready to do that today? To say yes to the leading of His Spirit? I invite you to do that as we stand and sing our hymn of commitment. The first, second, and last stanzas of God of grace and God of glory. Let us stand as we sing.